Today's scripture comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, verses 18 to 31. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is str stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilica, and I welcome you to our service today. Uh, if you missed out on our town hall meeting last month, uh, there are three kinds of growth that uh, we want to see this upcoming year. Uh, we want to grow smaller, we want to grow wider, and we want to grow deeper. So why would... We want to grow smaller. Don't most churches want to grow bigger? Well, we want to grow smaller in order to grow bigger. One of the common complaints with growing churches is that it's very hard to get plugged in, very hard to get connected, meet community. And so as a result of that, we, so what we want to do is grow smaller so that it's easier for you to get plugged in and have community. And so one of the many ways that we're going to grow smaller as a church is that this year we're not going to have a congregational retreat where we all go on the same retreat together. Instead, we're going to have a separate women's retreat and a separate men's retreat again to feel smaller so it's easier for you to get connected but we not only want to grow smaller as a church we also want to grow wider and so this past Friday we sent uh, a team to Cambodia uh, this coming fall we're hoping to send another team to Thailand and our vision and our hope is to saturate all of Asia uh, with exilic and a gospel presence but we not only want to grow smaller and wider in terms of our reach but we also want to grow deeper our church, if you don't know, is five years old. 
Now, I have two daughters, uh, four and one and a half, and I have seen the four-year-old go from crawling to walking to running to jumping to speaking back to me uh, to now, as of last week, writing her ABCs for the very first time. I have seen her grow, develop, and mature. And you know what? That is exactly what we want for you, each of you, from a spiritual perspective. Uh, We want to see you grow and thrive when it comes to your relationship with God. And the reason why I say that is because, in particular, if you've grown up in the church, just because you've grown up in the church, it doesn't mean that you're grown up, spiritually speaking. You could still have grown up in the church and yet still be a spiritual infant. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you're on a hot date with someone that you just met and you're at this very expensive, fancy French restaurant and the waiter comes up to your table and says, what would you like to drink? And your date says, they point at their wine glass and they say to the waiter, I would like your oldest, most expensive bottle of chocolate milk. And so the waiter raises his eyebrows, you raise your eyebrows, and you're like, okay, I'm going to just give them the benefit of the doubt for now, because I'm open. And so uh, it's just a yellow flag right now, not a red flag yet. And so your waiter comes back, pours a nice glass of Yoohoo in your wine glass, and your waiter says, now, uh, what would you like to eat? And your date looks at the bottom of the menu, towards the kids' menu, and your date says, I would like your finest dinosaur chicken nuggets, well done and crispy. Now that yellow flag is like a red siren going off because here is this adult that is thinking and acting like a child. And yet from a spiritual perspective, it's very, very possible to look like this. And that is not what we want for any of you. We want to see you grow and thrive and mature and deepen uh, your relationship with God. And so we are kicking off a series today on 1 Corinthians because it's all about growth and maturity. And we're entitling this series Up and to the Right because if you think about a graph, when anything goes up and to the right, it signifies growth, progress. When anything is down and to the right, it signifies regression and decline. And we want to see your spiritual trajectory go up and to the right. Now, granted, it will look more like climbing up a mountain, peaks and valleys, ups and downs, but the trajectory is there. And that is what we want for each of you. So we're going to take a look at the letter of 1 Corinthians because it's about growth, but we're not only taking a look at the letter of 1 Corinthians because it's about growth and maturity, but also because the city of Corinth in many ways resembles the city of New York. If there is one book in the Bible that is relevant for our cultural moment right now and what we're going through as New Yorkers, I would say it is the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I'm super excited to dive into this book with you. Take a look with me at verses 1 and 2. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Uh, The writer of this letter is Paul and in many ways he's an entrepreneur and he's an entrepreneur when it comes to startups, specifically church startups. And this church is started approximately 20 years 
after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so he starts this church in Corinth and he stays with them for about a year and a half until they stabilize. And then after they stabilize, he moves on to the rest of the Greco-Roman world to start other startup churches. The problem was that after five years from their inception, problems started to surface within the church. And because problems started to surface within the church in Corinth, Paul writes them four letters. Now, we don't really write letters anymore, but think of these four letters like very, very, very long emails to address and guide them with some of the problems that they're going through. Now, we don't have two of these four letters, but we do have two of the four letters. Uh, We don't have the first letter, and I have to be careful here, we don't have the (laughs) third letter. But what we do have is the second letter and the fourth letter, and the second letter that Paul writes to them is called 1 Corinthians. The fourth letter that we have is called 2 Corinthians. Now, why am I mentioning this little detail? I'm saying this because I don't know of any other church that Paul wrote four letters to. Sometimes he did two, but never four. So on the one hand, it means that he's very, very concerned about some of the problems that are taking place in this church. He's concerned. On the other hand, it also means that he deeply, deeply cares about this church in Corinth, which is why he writes four letters to them. And one of the reasons why he deeply cares about this church that he, helped st- that he started is because this was the only church in Corinth And Corinth was a very strategic place to be in many ways like New York City. To give you a little bit of a background in the city of Corinth, um, I think some of you have actually done a honeymoon to Santorini. Latitudinally, it's it's very close to Santorini. But in 146 uh, BC, uh, at one point it was a Greek city-state, but in 146 BC, the Romans came and destroyed and totally annihilated the city of Corinth. About 100 years after, around 43, 44 BC, uh, the city of Corinth was resurrected again and refurbished by none other than Julius Caesar. And the reason why I mention that is again to remind us that the Bible doesn't take place in Hogwarts, Middle Earth, the Shire, Arendelle. The Bible takes place in a real historical setting with real historical people. And because Julius Caesar resurrected the city of Corinth, it became one of the fastest growing cities in the Greco-Roman world. It became a cosmopolitan coastal port city. If every road led to Rome, many went through the city of Corinth because it was the key to going either east or to the west. And because of its fast growing uh, uh, community, immigrants were coming everywhere to start afresh. Uh, kind of like New York. It was filled with transplants with people that wanted to start a new chapter of their lives. Uh, It was a place where nobodies could become somebodies. It was like the wild, wild west because there was opportunities where there weren't other opportunities like in more established cities like Rome. And so the people there were very aspirational, very ambitious, and very excited to be there. Uh, So it was a melting pot of different cultures that people were flooding in with. So they brought with them their religions, they brought with them their cultures, uh, they brought with them their uh, diverse experiences. So it's very pluralistic pagan city, socioeconomically diverse, ethnically diverse, sexually diverse, religiously diverse, philosophically very, very diverse. 
the, the, the main god in the city of Corinth was Aphrodite, and if you've done any traveling, uh, you can still find statues of Aphrodite from way back then. Aphrodite was the god, goddess of love, sex, beauty, and pleasure. <clears throat> and in the temple of Aphrodite, there were a thousand prostitutes that would serve anyone that, that came. And oftentimes these prostitutes were called Corinthian girls. And so the word Corinthian became associated with being sexually promiscuous. Um, the, the, the philosopher Aristophanes uh, coined the term Corinthiazo, which meant to be sexually, sexually promiscuous. And so if what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And so it was a very sexually promiscuous place, but in many ways it was like America. It was a place where all your dreams could come true. And so people were flooding in here to fulfill the Corinthian dream. Again, to, be, to start afresh and make a new name and uh, start a new lives uh, for themselves. And so the problem was that this church in Corinth that Paul started, so in many ways he was, he was thrilled that the church could even survive in a place, pluralistic place like Corinth, but he not only wanted the church to survive, he wanted it to thrive. The problem was that with this church in Corinth, there was more Corinth in them than there was of Christ. Just because a ship is surrounded by a body of water, it doesn't mean it's gonna sink. It's only when the water starts going inside the ship that the ship begins to sink. And similarly, when a church is surrounded by sort of a secular you know, society, it doesn't mean that it's gonna sink. It's only when the negative aspects of our culture, our culture has positive and negative aspects, but it's only when the negative aspects of our culture start coming into the church that the church starts to eventually sink. And that is what was happening here. And the reason why it was happening is because every day you and I wake up, there is an invisible competition taking place and it is called the happiness competition. And everyone is trying to sell you something on how you can experience the good life and happiness, whether it's through advertisements, the shows we watch, the people we hang out with, the people we work with. Everyone is trying to compete for your attention and your life on how you can experience the good life. And you know what, the Corinthian way, it's working. I was a nobody when I was there, but now that I'm here, I'm important. I'm successful, I have money, you know? And there are all these other people around me that are just as ambitious and I can network with them and I can make a name for myself. And so the Corinthian way to a thriving, flourishing life, it was working. The problem was Christianity also offered another way. In fact, did you know that before Christianity was called Christianity, it was originally called the way? Did you know that before Christians were called Christians, they were originally called followers of the way? And the reason for that is because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And you if you follow this way, this is the way to your flourishing and happiness. And so there was these two ways that people could choose from, the Corinthian way and the Christ-centered way. The problem was that the Corinthian way just felt so much more tangible so much more real, and it felt like it was working. And so as a result of that, the church in Corinth had more of Corinth in them than that of Christ. And so from the onset, Paul is reminding them in verses one and two, don't you know who you are? You're a sanctified people. You're God's holy people. And the word holy means to be set apart. You're supposed to be different. And so he's trying to remind them at the very onset of this letter, this is who you really are, not that. I asked my uh, wife, Hannah, permission to share this person.
many moons ago, she used to be an event planner and she worked for different corporates. And so oftentimes she would do events for a week long in Vegas and LA and all these different places. Once a month, she would be gone for a week. And as she's staying in hotel after hotel, uh, working all day, uh, eating out all the time, spending every day with her coworkers, all of whom were not Christian, she would sometimes return home after a week-long trip and she would think to herself, I did not think about God once this entire week. And you know what? It was so easy to do because I was working and I was living this life and her work had consumed her. Her job had consumed her. That lifestyle had consumed her and swallowed up her, swallowed up her, uh, her so much that she had forgotten who she was. And it was at that moment she realized that she needed to make a change. Now, why do I get the hunch that many of you can relate to the idea of being consumed with something so much that you don't even remember who you are anymore? The reason why Paul is writing this letter to these successful Corinthians is to remind them who they really, really are. They are children of God, called to live a sanctified life and a holy life before him. And one of the reasons why it was so difficult for them to do is because even though they were Christian, the message of the cross hit their hearts, but it didn't penetrate deeply into their hearts enough. And so he reminds them again of the foundational message of what the cross is all about. And if you take a look with me at verse 18, he says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word foolishness that is used here is the Greek word moros from where we get the word moron. The message of the cross is moronic to outsiders to those who don't believe in this. And you know what, living in a post-truth, post-Christian society today, the message of the cross is also moronic and foolish to people that don't understand. And one of the reasons why it was so difficult for the Greeks and the Jews to understand the message of the cross is this, you have to realize that again, Corinth is in Greece. Jerusalem is all the way over here, the epicenter of Christianity where Jesus died. Keep in mind that this is way before the time of the internet. They are so distantly removed from anything that happened in Israel that the thought of a Jewish carpenter dying and rising again, cuckoo, you've gotta be crazy to believe in something like that. It was idiotic. You were delusional. You were a moron if you believed in something like that. And you know what? We are not only distantly removed from Jerusalem and what happened, but from a time perspective, we're 2,000 years removed. And it doesn't help that in our culture today, the cross in many ways is domesticated and sanitized. Did you know that starting in the fourth century AD, the cross became a symbol of art, decor hanging on walls, and a piece of jewelry? And the reason why the cross became a symbol of art and jewelry is because by the fourth century, no one alive had ever even seen a crucifixion because by the fourth century, the practice of crucifixion had become extinct because of how barbaric and inhumane the practice was. So nobody alive in the fourth century had ever seen a crucifixion. But prior to the first, fourth century, from the first century to the third, it was still practiced. 
And it was one of the most monstrous ways that you can die. Cicero, uh, the Roman uh, poet and philosopher, said that crucifixion was the most cruelest, horrible, horrific death possible that it would have been better to have been eaten alive by animals, burnt alive, or decapitated. Those were all better ways of dying than by crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low, the lowest of the low slaves. And perhaps now you know the reason why Paul says that Jesus himself took the form of a slave. It's no coincidence that the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. And I realize that sometimes today when uh, pastors in particular try to modernize the, uh, the uh, act of crucifixion, it's often compared to an electric chair. Uh, but that is a very thin way of making an analogy. For starters, because the electric chair is often done privately and it's done very quickly. Whereas with the crucifixion, it was never done privately. <laughs> it was always done publicly. And it wasn't always done publicly, it was also done very slowly. So it was done publicly on, on the Pax Romana, on the roads that went in and out of Rome for everyone to see. So that if you disobey the government, everyone would know that this is what would happen to you too if you disobeyed. And so in many ways, the people that were crucified wasn't, were, were an example of what could potentially happen to you. But it was not only public, but it was very slow. Uh, this is the reason why the Roman soldiers are so surprised that Jesus dies within six hours. And so they spear him in his side to doubly make sure that he's really, really dead. Because when people were crucified, it usually took two or three days for them to finally die. And so I think a better way of contemporizing the act of crucifixion 2,000 years ago is you being completely naked, sitting on an electric chair in the middle of Times Square for everyone to see you as slow yet powerful bolts of electricity enter through the course of your veins so that you would die in about two or three days. But what was even worse than the pain of a cross, the physical pain, it was the emotional shame. Nobody wanted to ever be associated with anyone that was hanging on a cross. That's why all the disciples abandoned and deserted Jesus when he died. You know, two and a half weeks ago, arguably one of the greatest basketball players in history died, tragically and suddenly. And what was so interesting after Kobe's death is all the stories that were coming up coming out about Kobe, and it's almost as if everyone wanted to be associated with Kobe. I don't have a personal relationship with Kobe, but even I have two personal stories about Kobe Bryant. And everyone just wanted to be associated with Kobe. But when it came to people that died on a crucifixion, nobody wanted to be associated with anyone that hung on a cross. The shame was just too, too much. And this is why it was a stumbling block for Jews to actually believe that Jesus was really God. How could he die on a cross? The shame, the shame of being associated with any, there's no way. How, how could he have confessed to be God? For, for me to intertwine my faith and my life with that, that was moronic. So why is the cross 
the crux of Christianity and the foundation of everything that we believe. Well, as hideous as the cross is, there is much beauty to be found in the cross. As ugly and as monstrosic, if that's a word, as it is, it is really, really beautiful. Why? To put it very simply, it's because on the cross, Jesus got what we deserve. And on the cross, we get what he deserved. This is what Martin Luther called the marvelous exchange. He gets our sin, our death, our curse, our judgment, and we get his righteousness and perfect life credited to our account as if we lived the life of Mother Teresa, even though he didn't. That's what Luther called the marvelous exchange. And that is the magic of what happens uh, on the cross in our place. Now you might be thinking, are you, saying, are you saying that I need to die like that? For what? I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person. I don't deserve to die a criminal's death. Well, let me put it like this. If you were to slap me in the face, okay, you might get in a little trouble, but if you, if you slap the president or a king or a prime minister or someone very distinguished in the face, you will get into a lot of trouble. Same actions, different consequences. Why? Because of the importance of the person. The fact that we deserve hell, that kind of severe punishment, it only points to the fact of the importance and the greatness and the majesty of who God is, not his smallness. It points to his greatness. And so what we deserve is judgment for breaking off that relationship with him and our lives total, totally being unaligned with his will for us and out of tune. But here's the good news. The story of Christianity doesn't end with justice or judgment. It ends with mercy, which is why uh, in the Gospels it says that mercy triumphs over judgment. <laughs> it's all about grace. It's not about justice. It's all about mercy, not about judgment because of what we receive, because of what uh, Jesus Christ has done for us. In the gospel of evolution, it's survival of the fittest, the strong eating the weak, the weak dying for the strong. But in the gospel of Christianity, it's the strong dying for the weak. It's completely, completely reversed. And that's what Paul wants to remind them of. And he wants to remind them that the message of the cross is not just our salvation, but it presents to us a new way of living. Our salvation is not the finish line, it's the starting line. You know what the finish line is? Glory, death, heaven. But between our salvation and glorification, this is a long distance. It could be decades upon decades. So the question is, how are we to live between our salvation and glorification? We're called to live wisely. And we're called to reflect and look more and more like who Jesus is. And that's what they forgot. The message of the cross is not just our salvation, but it presents to us a totally new way to live our lives. And that's what Paul wants to remind them of in verse 26 to 29. Read with me where he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast 
before him. Again, keep in mind that Corinth was a very aspirational city. These nobodies had now become somebodies. These unsuccessful people had now become successful and as a result of that, they forgot who they once were. And Paul is here reminding them this. God did not choose you because you're a successful Corinthian. He chose you when you were nobody. God did not choose you because you're now respected or you have this amount in your bank account or because you're powerful now. He chose you when you were nothing. But because they had become somebodies, Jesus was no longer the center of their, li- their lives. He was just an accessory. And Paul is reminding them that he needs to be the center of your life again. Don't you remember what you once were? Think of what you were. I like the way that Scott Saul says it. Uh, it's not in your bulletin, but Saul says, we will use anything, good looks, status, career, family, humor, friendships, religion, sex, influence, or a financial portfolio to rewrite our stories and give ourselves a new name. Why is this? And the reason why we write, rewrite our stories and rewrite our names with all of these things is because we've forgotten that we already have a new name. You are a child of God. You are sanctified and you are called to live a holy life. And this foolishness of the gospel, it is the wisdom of God on how you can live a wise life. And the foolishness of the gospel then, in the world's eyes, if you really understand it, it will also cause you to do foolish things for him. Last week, our Cambodia team came up here to do a presentation about how they were leaving on Friday. Unbeknownst to many of you though, there was a lot of internal debate as to whether the team should go, mostly by myself. You see, I had lived in China during the middle of SARS, and I knew what it was like to wear a mask every single day and not not be allowed to take any public transportation at all. I had to ride my bicycle everywhere I went, and I didn't want them to go through that. And so that That day on Sunday, there was a lot of debate as to whether they should even make a presentation for the second service because we were this close to postponing, which actually meant canceling the trip. But we decided to take another night to think through whether they should go or not. And on Monday evening, we had a Zoom chat that lasted almost till midnight about whether the team should go or not. There were some tears. There were some hesitations and oscillations, and there were some passionate pleas that the team should go. But one thing was for sure, if one person didn't want to go, even one, they collectively decided that they would not go. And at a certain point, um, before we did sort of our, our silent vote on whether every individual wanted to go, one of the members said, I'm not trying to sway everyone's opinion but what am I supposed to do with everything Pastor Gene taught us during our missions training about people throughout missions history, ordinary people who went on to do extraordinary things, who, who risked their lives and their families for the sake of the gospel to the ends of the earth. What am I supposed to do with that? Do you know what this trip meant for me? This trip to Cambodia was an opportunity for me to put a stake in the ground, she said, to put a stake in the ground and say to myself, this is what matters to me. This is the stuff I really care about, not that stuff. And I, 
I thought I was in a movie. I, I so wish you could have been a fly on the wall to hear that conversation because of just how seminal that moment was when she gave that speech. The kind of resiliency and moxie in that digital chat room was unbelievable to me. And so we took a five-minute break to pray individually. And one by one, they silently, individually slacked me whether they wanted to go. Again, on the condition that if one person said no, they would not go. And one by one, I got a slack that said yes. Another slack, let's do this. Another slack, let's go. Until the eighth person, the final person finally said, let's do this. Now I am going to hold my breath until they come back. But that's foolish. Why, why, why go over there? Now I know that the rational of you might think, well, there's like 2% chance that anything is going to happen to them. But you know what, experientially, when you see everyone on the plane, including flight attendants wearing a mask, experientially, psychologically, it's nerve-wracking because you don't know what's going to happen. But they went. Totally stupid. But perhaps it was the wise thing to do, the wisdom of God, the spiritually grown-up thing to do. Let's pray. Lord, our lives, uh, the trajectory of our lives are based upon certain significant moments, four, maybe five big moments, and then maybe a dozen or so smaller moments, and I can't help but feel like last Friday was such a seminal moment for our brothers and sisters that went to Cambodia, and I'm excited about the trajectory of their lives, but you know what? I want that for everyone here too. Our lives are built upon significant moments and some smaller moments, and we need to make the right choices and live our lives wisely even if it means looking like a fool from the world's perspective. Help us to remember that to live is Christ, to die is gain. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. But the ushers to come forward,